Hello, and welcome to Endpoint Management Today, the Big Fix podcast. My name is Rhonda Student-Kaiser. I'm the Big Fix Director of Customer Experience. And I'm James Stewart, Big Fix Slack admin. Today, we're really excited to have Aaron Bauer with us. Um, Aaron is a principal UX designer for HCL Software, but he started out right here with us in Big Fix. So Aaron, what got you started in tech? So I'm not sure what got me started in technology. I remember from, I've always been interested in computers. And when I was in high school, you know, building my own computer, building computers for my family, just something that really interested me for some reason, just the inner workings of computers were fascinating. I, I never focused like educationally just on computers. I liked, I liked sort of always trying to combine two or three things, uh, understanding of people technology and and design uh, th- those were three things that always really interested me and so throughout both both my work and my educational career I always tried to find things that focused on those three things so yeah I, I think from early on just the intersection of computers and people was something that that fascinated me and and that I always wanted to pursue so did you have any interesting jobs in the field? So I've had some interesting titles. I guess my favorite right after I, I was a CogSci undergrad, which let me uh, study both, uh, again, computers and people. So that'd be cognitive science? Yeah, sorry, cognitive science. Yeah, at San Diego. And I came back up to the Bay Area. I'm from the Bay Area. And my first job was as a knowledge engineer, which was a title I always loved. It's actually a, an official title for a specific role in artificial t- intelligence. Hopefully I can get this right now. We were building expert shopping systems. And so a, a knowledge engineer, when, when you're building expert systems, is responsible for sort of eliciting knowledge from people and turning that into the data that the system uses, in, in this case, to make shopping recommendations. So I would go out in the field and I would I would be working with let's say a photographer, digital, this was back in 2000, I think. So, you know, it was just starting digital photography. That seems very early. It was, it was pretty early. It was, <laughs> this, this was uh, during the dot-com bubble. And uh, this is one of the burst ones, although it did get acquired by, I can't remember, shopping.com or something like that. It was, it was fun. T- they were fun times. And it was a lot of fun to be out in the field, learning about people. And then, translating that. Well, I, I love the technology part of it where I was, I learned a lot about databases, which I knew nothing about before then, but just that translation of their knowledge into something that you could then see on the screen and have a user go through and sort of mimic the shopping experience was, was super fascinating to me. And I love both the field aspect of it and the building aspect. It was, it was fun times, standard, I think 2000.com. Uh, enterprise that did not last very long. And it was right after that, actually, that I started working with Big Fix before going off to grad school. So when that burst, my sister was actually working as an intern at Big Fix at the time. And that's how I got in to Big Fix. There were actually a bunch of siblings at Big Fix at the time. And it was it was highly high. I, I would guess at least 50% of the, of the people that were working there were interns from Berkeley, which was a big, a strong tradition for Big Fix for many, many, many years. So yeah, I, I got over to Big Fix right after that that first bubble burst and managed the 
first iteration of the client. This was the cons- when there was just a consumer client. There wasn't any. Um, there wasn't an enterprise client. We were just selling to like gateway machines, and had a free version that many that people listening might have had on on their machines. And, and yeah, so what I I think some of our customers would be surprised to hear that Big Fix started as a consumer play. Yeah, I didn't know. I had no idea. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was interesting. There was a lot of interesting problems in the in the consumer space. I mean, everyone. One of my favorite memories from that, or from running the Big Fix content at the time, was my who's now my brother in law had a machine that had Big Fix on it, and going over there and just seeing all of the bugs, all of the issues on his machine. Why is my machine running so slowly? Well, I could just r- open up Big Fix and point to all of the crap that was on the machine. And it was there were there were a lot of interesting problems at the time. A lot of my family surprisingly had the Big Fix consumer client on the machine. I actually have a CD that I got on eBay from 1998 that has the consumer version of Big Fix on it that was like bundled with a bunch of other software on the CD. Can it still gather? I have no idea. It's very, very old. <laughs> uh, we should try that. <laughs> I've, I've never used it, but I, I have that CD. I, I got it for like 20 bucks from the UK. It probably runs on like Windows. Like 95, 98. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I know whenever, in my experience with Big Fix, I'm I'm often surprised by what it does or, or doesn't do. And I... And I um, I always tell people learning big fix is like learning archaeology. You know, you you understand one level and then you realize there's something underneath. So you brush that level off and you find another level and you work your way down. But what were some of your first surprises about big fix, whether it's that old consumer client or what it was maybe when you left for grad school and and then when you came back? I guess my first surprise and I think my ongoing kind of fascination with big fix is just how much it can do and how much, uh, you know, you're talking about peeling, you know, peeling back the layers. And I think that's, that's a good way of looking at it. It's just amazing to me how powerful it is. It can point and shoot on some things, but then you can build all, all the automations people build, like James built in the past and continues to build. It's just, it's amazing to me how much power it puts in the hands of, of admins. And I, I've always loved seeing what people can do with it. I mean, that's always been sort of the coolest part for me is is seeing what people do with it and seeing how excited they get about their solutions. I don't, I don't know. I look at a lot of different enterprise software. And I don't see that. I don't see that for for other other systems like ours. Continuing that analogy, it's like when you get far enough in the the archaeological dig and you get a couple layers deep, and then all of a sudden you find the magic that's hidden below that you didn't know was there because you really have to make some content that's really focused for your organization and get it out there running as like policies so that they happen automatically and then you start seeing the fruits of that where all of a sudden you have problems that are getting fixed automatically and you don't even know that they're problems until you go and check and see oh this this action is run hundreds of times and it's been fixing things this whole time and I didn't even know it. And then you really start to see, oh, I get what's going on now. Yeah. Yeah. Th- those automations. I mean, I, I remember, I think when I rejoined Big Fix back in 
2008 when it had the enterprise that the enterprise system was up and running fine i i was the first designer on the team and and so one of the first things i wanted to do was learn more about system administrators right i hadn't i i'd never really taken a, a solid look at system administrators one of the things that stood out to me at the time which which was sort of disheartening as a as a designer was a lot of surveys a lot of people coming back with administrators saying no ui please like what what do you want from a ui no no none i don't want a ui do not everything needs to be command line everything needs to be you know and, and it was a very like it was sort of a shock to me to come into this role and see what i was trying to build with something that they said they didn't want and i think as as i learned over time it wasn't really or or the impression i got over time was it wasn't really about the the ui it was about the lack of freedom that uis usually bring with them you can't customize this you can't do anything you can't build your automations like you can at the command line and i think that's one of the reasons for me i i felt like it's always been successful is that it gives it puts in people's hands the power to build those automations and it's just it's always been fascinating to see that but well that's one of the keys of having the rest api is that it provides that non-ui interface yeah yeah that would be just from your perspective you know being such a people-focused person and to to hear that this thing that you i mean that had to have been disheartening so you had to find different ways of overcoming that you know showing ways that you can yeah. I don't know. Use a UI but still be but still not inhibit ideas and growth. Yeah, and I think it's a constant battle with Big Fix and it's one that I I feel like <laughs> I still hope at some point we can really really resolve. You know, just we talk about build, you know, creating uh, creating relevance, creating action script, those that type of, of thing. It can be a, a big challenge for people. It, it's how people build their automations. And I still truly believe we can build, we could, we can and will build great UIs to help people build these automations more easily to, to, to overcome that learning curve. And I think done it over time. And I think continuing to do that, that that's sort of how I've looked at it. I often, from the design perspective, people are telling you one thing, but you, you, you really try and f are trying to figure out what they, what they need, right? What they're actually trying to accomplish. And I think that's, that to me, is one of the big ones there is we need to make it easier. I, I've always wanted to try and make it easier for people to, to build their own content, to build these automations. And a lot of the UIs we've done over time, a lot of the wizards we had in the past, a lot of the web UI right now is, is really about helping our customers build the things they need to customize big fix for their environment. That's sort of the way I've looked at it. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I also think that um, the the beauty of something like WebUI is that you can disseminate the power, I guess I would say, or so, you know, you don't want, I'm sure we started, probably you guys remember back in the day, right? So everybody was a master operator, and then you realize, oh, wait, that's like, that's too much power for one person. So, you, you know, you had to figure out roles and and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and that's the beauty of what we want to do with WebUI is to enable, you know, more people to take advantage of it without having all the same powers that, you know, you want an admin to have. So it's a really tricky balancing act to be able to give design for with both use cases in mind. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that was, I mean, the web UI, that really was the original. There are a couple of key things we needed to do with the web UI initially, but I think everyone understood that having a web UI was necessary for the future. But the console, as we grew to these deployments with a lot of operators and a lot of operators that didn't spend a lot of time with Big Fix, that didn't become Big Fix experts, the console became incredibly overwhelming for them. And it just wasn't something that people could, you know, take for a couple minutes, get their work done and get out. And so that was a big original goal of the web UI was to make it easier for them to accomplish simple things for, for those roles that aren't big fix experts, super admins to be able to leverage big fix for, to make their lives easier. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, the initial goals of the web UI was to be the exact opposite of the rest API. Like the rest of the API is like, if you want a really advanced interface, you have that. Yeah. You have the console, which is kind of this in-between, and then you have the web UI that's really focused on that junior operator. And now the challenge is bringing all the functionality to the web UI, and that's an ongoing yeah. process. Right? Oh, yeah, it's a huge challenge, but a huge opportunity, too. To, Absolutely. To really, I mean, the, the web yeah. UI allows us to do so much more than we could do in the past. Yep. For sure. So what's your favorite part of Big Fix? My favorite part of Big Fix, the product itself, that customizability, the, the sense of power, I think, is from the product perspective, my favorite part. But I think, you know, I, I've stayed with, I, I've stayed in the Big Fix environment so long because of, I and mean, it sounds trite, but because of the people in it, but it's not just the, it's, we, we have an incredible team, that the Big Fix team, itself is incredible across around the world now but the customers have also like again as a as a as a designer as a user experience guy i love talking to people i love talking to customers and it's the, they're passionate and and they do interesting things right and so it's it really is that from both my colleagues and from the people who use my products that I get to talk to, I, I just have incredible interactions and I learn a lot about people and about, uh, about the product. And I think that's definitely my favorite part of Big Fix. I get to work with incredible people on both sides of the fence. Yeah. You have a lot of experience interacting with customers at like conferences and giving talks and stuff like that. Did it? Did anything that a customer or even someone internal did with Big Fix surprise you? Like you didn't even realize it could do that, or they used it in such an interesting way that it kind of <laughs> took you back. I, I often struggle to to bring back the specifics, and I think the the the, the funny part is a lot of those that I think about are, are ones that, that you talked about in the past. I remember one of my favorites was. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get repeat this back correctly, which is makes it fortunate that you're on this. But it was, I think, someone at, at Penn State. I don't. I think someone else you were working with created. There was some automation that they used to create like uh, tons of installers, uh, fix it, fix it installers. I can't remember exactly how this worked, but. It just went out and and gathered. I, I, I is is this ringing a, ringing a bell? Oh here? yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know that talk, and <laughs> I was I was very proud of that talk. I don't know if it was my first talk at uh, the conferences or if it was you know 
No, actually, it wasn't my first. I think it was maybe my second. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And the whole point of the talk from start to finish was like different ways to automate different parts of big fix content, like relevance, action script, and the whole thing. And what you're talking about is actually what I talked about at the very end of that talk. And at Penn State, it was my colleague, Matt Hansen, and with some help from me as like the big fix expert, using a, a piece of software called Auto PKG, which is actually a Mac-only application that, that you can use to generate content for any automation tool, not just BigFix. So it's very popular for Mac admins to use. But we basically adapted it to work. I mean, Matt Hansen really um, adapted it to work with BigFix and then created automation within AutoPKG to create fixlets and tasks and things in BigFix. And so what it would do, it was it would reach out to like Firefox's website and it would scrape the HTML and look for the newest version of the software inside the HTML. And then it would grab the latest download and then it would generate the package from that in BigFix automatically. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty freaking. And we did that for hundreds of applications. And that's something that I've always meant to work on and make available to the community as a whole. Um, it, it, I mean, it, uh, some of that work is available now, but to make more of an effort around that, to package it up a little better. But it is technically out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think a lot, uh, I, I mean, a lot of the presentations I would remember would, would be some of yours. But I think one of my favorite presentations you were actually also involved in you know the stanford oh. folks i think the stacy and uh jeremy stacy lee and jeremy tavin i think were i think it was jeremy was here by then this was the um yeah the play they, they basically the I, I think it was with query and th th there was a great presentation with a with a back and forth like oh oh i i got a call from my boss sorry I, i'd have to pause for a second oh yeah we could figure that it was it was great like yeah, yeah, their presentations yeah. are something. So that was actually me calling Stacy in the middle of the talk. And so I was um <laughs> it got to a certain point in the talk and so I just started calling him uh because that that's what I was told to do, but I wasn't exactly sure when, but I <laughs> I just called him like every like I called him once and he didn't answer and so that I kind of waited a couple of beats and then I called him again and he didn't answer. And so I just kept doing that until he finally answered. Um, but that made it seem even more intense because it made it seem like he was not taking a phone call multiple times during the presentation. But this was all staged. This was all on purpose. I think I was like misreading the cue of when to call him, but it made it seem that much more real because people in the audience afterwards, they were like, oh, so what was that? What was that call? And I was like, no, that was me. I was, that was all staged. That was the whole thing. But yeah, um, some of the Stanford talks have been really impressive about having that like showmanship and stage yeah. presence as a part of their talk, which is really fun. Yeah. And that, if I remember right, he was actually, it was a live demo, right? Or I, I can't remember. I, uh, I think it was, I'm or semi-live. I think maybe part of it was they definitely had yeah. some presentation. Yeah. And I think in the presentation, they may have had like pre-recorded um, mm. showing different UI yeah. elements at different yeah. parts. But I think they did actually do like a live demo at the end or something like that. Or maybe that's when yeah. they switched to the live demo was that's, after no, that's that call. I, that's how I remember it was them switching to the live demo after that, which made it because I, I came out the same way as some of the others. I was, 
you know, I knew, I mean, I'm their advocate. I, I work with them pretty well. I knew there wasn't, that it was probably staged, but it seemed so real. <laughs> it was, <laughs> and I think it was partly, I'm, I'm probably remembering it wrong, but I think it was partly because they did do some type of live yeah. query after that. Yeah, I think that's what it was, is that they had the presentation, they went through the presentation, and a part of the presentation, they did show some UI stuff and some pre-recorded stuff. And then I think you're right that they transitioned to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I wish that was recorded. That theirs were never recorded. Those that are really was a, good. a really special one. Yeah. Hey, Aaron. So you just mentioned advocacy, client advocacy. So and and you've kind of moved on to the greater HCL, but you're still really involved with us, and you're still an advocate for our customers. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about client advocacy and what it is and what you what you get out of it and hopefully what you're giving to your customers to your client advocate teams based on your experience so so client advocacy i mean the i hope hopefully i can uh, speak back to the program to you well <laughs> but um we we've had informal advocacy relationships with a lot of customers for many many years it's you know the close relationship between our development team and customers is really even before the ibm Days was a critical part of us, and, and Stanford I've worked with for many many years. But the idea of advocacy is we have people on our development team that are advocates for a, a specific set of customer or a specific customer, and that means they you know you meet regularly with them, you understand the customer a lot better, so you can support them as they navigate through the different things that they need from, from the big fix team, from the lar larger HCL software team. So it's sort of a, a point of contact and. A, a, a regular sync between Big Fix and the Big Fix team and the customers. And, and the advocacy team in Big Fix provides content, provides a kind of awareness to the advocates of what's going on in the in HCL and in uh, the Big Fix product line that their customers might need to know. So it's, it's just the key point there for me is it really connects big fix with customers. And when customers need support, they can go to the advocate and say, hey, I'm having this issue. Is, is there any way you can help out? Or I'd really like to know more about this product offering you have. And we can connect them quickly with whoever is best to, whether it's a product manager, whether it's a, you know a, a, the dev lead that, that can help get them the information they need. It's, it's really about smoothing over the connection between customers and big fix. Yeah, it's one thing to be able to go to the forum or Slack or even filing a support ticket, but having an actual person that you can talk to sometimes just makes things clearer and go much quicker. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, we're I know I know I know Stanford's happy to have you and uh we're happy that you're continuing to to advocate on behalf of Big Fix with your customers. Yeah, I, I don't see myself ever stopping because I'm with HCL. It's not like I'm, I'm still part of the big, still consider myself part of the big fix team, even though I've moved over to a broader design role in HCL software. So, what convinced you to leave the formal big fix team and move over to the HCL software design team? So, it's something I wouldn't have done before we joined HCL. And I mean, the, the, the reason. I was willing to do that. Well, two two parts. One, I don't feel like I've really left the big fix team I, until you know the COVID days. I was still coming into the same office, seeing the same people, having some of the same conversations about products um, that were, were before. It's a little harder now that we're not in the office. But 
it didn't feel like I was I was completely leaving Big Fix was one part. But the big part reason is I really believe in how HCL software is trying to develop these products going forward, is, is trying to give the product teams the space to manage their products and, and manage the future and the direction of their products. And with that comes, but with HCL software, there does come a need for some level of, of consistency, uh, some level of shared UX. There's some design issues that can't really be handled by independent teams. Multiple, in, you know, 20 independent teams are going to produce many, many different things. So uh, the thing I really liked about the way HCL software was looking at this was that the, the team, product teams have the space to do what they needed to do for their product line. And then HCL, from the, the UX, central UX team would be providing the things that are necessary across all those teams. I, I really, really like that that model, the philosophy of HCL software, giving product teams their, um, I'm repeating this multiple times, but giving product teams the independence to, to do what they need to do. And then us as a central team providing the support they need across all these different product requirements. It's not something I'd seen in previous teams. I'd seen much more of a top-down approach that that the Big Fix team had struggled with in the past. And I wanted to create help create something that would work well for the for the big fix team and for all the other product teams and it's been exciting to learn about a lot of the other great products that hcl software has acquired um, and is starting to to release on their own and ux in this context is user experience i oh, believe sorry. and yes, design and, and user experience right and so a part of your team is trying to have a consistent user experience but not necessarily prescribe the UI itself down to the nitty gritty details. It's yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So it's really hard for a central team to know all about the product context. We, we're not a central team team can't know all the users across all these different products. Like the, we, HCL software serves a ton of different types of users, a ton of different types of use cases. And, you know, in the past I've seen design teams that don't understand products, trying tell the products how they should work. Right, and if you don't know the users, if you don't know the, uh, if you don't know the product, it's not that's not going to end up well. So the idea is that the teams, the de the designers on the team, the the, the architects, all, all the product teams understand their users and what they need, and so the flows, the user flow, those types of things, that that's something that they need to be responsible for and make sure that they're doing the proper research and proper documentation for that. But there's certain elements that need to be consistent across HCL software. I mean, it, it could be as simple as colors, the logos, things like that. Colors, fonts, logos. Those, those are the basic look and feel that you think. And that's, a, that's at a very basic level, some of the stuff that you don't need everyone reinventing the wheel here, right? You need one look and feel for HCL software. And that's something that a central team would be responsible for, not for how you push a patch in Big Fix. That would, there's very few people on my team that know that, if anyone other than me. So it would be silly for them to try and design that by themselves. So yeah, it's it's really, it's more than look and feel, but you can think of, of look and feel as one of the obvious examples of where a central team, the HCL software team would be sort of managing design for multiple product lines, including Big Fix. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely.
I, I like the idea of the, you know, the autonomy, but, but also the, the standards. I think that is where no matter what it, what it is, I mean, not even specific to, to software or tech, one, one rule, one, it doesn't always fit every situation. One, you know, so the idea of flexibility in all things in life seems like a pretty powerful and important thing yeah. for us all to think about. Yeah, it is. I mean, you can you can see the other why why people often argue the other side too, because you know the more the more versions of the same thing you have, the more you think, oh well, why doesn't everyone just do this the same? Why doesn't everyone use the same technology? Why doesn't everyone use the same you know X Y Z? We're just reinventing the wheel, or we're we're wasting resources. And it's easy to think that when you don't understand the product context, which is what I really really believe in. I believe big fixers understand big fix and big fix users in a way that's very hard for someone that hasn't spent as much time as we have with with our product and our customers that's what that's definitely something i liked as a customer is you know i would interact with you and others at the conferences and be like oh wow you really get it or you really seem to understand you know what big fix is about and what kind of things i use it for what kind of things it could or should be used for and you know liz as a customer brought me in to like design review stuff like that and i was able to like give feedback and stuff like that and yeah that was like a really valuable experience to have that direct interaction with design yeah and and those are i mean the things that big fix did really well does really well um those those are the types of things that we want to bring across to other other product teams and help support their designers and their development team in, in having those types of close customer relationships or design reviews. And in, in the same way, I've seen from some of the other teams, some very interesting customer interaction techniques that they have that would be good to take back to big fix at some time. Yeah, absolutely. That I'd, I'd like to look into a little bit more. And I think that's, I really feel like HCL software is a place where where teams can collaborate a little bit more and learn from each other and and i really 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 want to help promote that because there's a lot of diff- there are a bunch of different teams that are doing some really cool stuff yeah that can make each of our product better and i think that there is a lot of things that are relatively universal about ux and ui that could be mutually beneficial to all the different teams you know where you have a whole bunch of data that you need to present that to users. How do we do that best? And if one team solves it in an awesome way, then those same concepts could be translated over to other products. Absolutely. I mean, it's, and it's something as simple as a, the color scheme for graphs that Liz worked really hard on that. Right. And it's super difficult. It's way more difficult than you would expect finding a good set of, of uh, graph safe colors. And, why do we want everyone to do that same go through that same difficult process and come up with difficult results if we can find if one person solves that that's not something that needs to be special to big fixer today and i know liz would say the same thing as she was going through her designs if she had had some set color scheme she would have used it 100 percent because that's not the interesting problem the interesting problem is understanding what 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 the customers need to see what the data is sure What's going to help them make their decisions better? That's the interesting problem. Let's let our developers and designers get to the interesting problems and take care of stuff that everyone else is going to have to do too. Well, I think something important to communicate to the other teams and other designers is not just that we have come up with this color scheme, but also why and what 
the reasons went into it and, and what problems it solves and how it helps the users to have this particular color scheme. Yeah, and, and that's something that we can hopefully spend, and we have started to and can hopefully continue to spend more time as a central team, is documenting those types of decisions, documenting the, the why. It's very easy when you're developing these things to, to go through it, to finish it, and you're done. And it's not yeah. like taking the time to, to document the whys is, is something that you sort of have to do when you're trying to provide this across multiple teams. Because we... <laughs> Because particularly with when when you're getting to convincing different product teams, hey, you should use this. You better damn well better have a good rationale. And I know that from right. working with big folks because you always needed a good rationale to work with us. Yeah. And and we rejected a lot of stuff because we didn't believe in it. Yeah. If if you're just saying you must use this color scheme, but you're not telling a why it's like because all this research went into it all this effort went into it these were what work this is why they work yep. maybe it has these certain like colorblind awareness about the color scheme and stuff like that but if you're not communicating part of the effort and reasoning behind it then it feels prescriptive for no reason and you're like yeah but why do i have to use this when it's not clearly better to me than any other scheme yep yeah no exactly so maybe one last kind of geeky UX designer kind of question before we wrap up today. So is there some thing on the horizon, some human computer interaction interface that you are like super geeky excited about? Uh, that's, uh, I don't know. I feel like I've always get disappointed when, <laughs> when i get when i get excited about something you know it's all it feels like it's always a uh there's always something so, so i'd say no there's there's not anything so that I'm, I'm really i guess what i'm interested in exploring and i've been interested in exploring for a while are voice interfaces i mean we mm -hmm. have so many throughout our um throughout our environment right now I, I think I have four or five in my house, a very small house. I'm sure you guys have some as well. And I have, I, I'd love to explore it a little bit more and see what we can do. I know there have been some cool examples and some of the big fix hackathons. It's been one of the, it has been one of the projects that people have worked on. I know I, I researched it, was it two years ago? I can't remember which one it was, but there's such closed systems right now that some of the things we would want to do, like being able to call in to a big fix deployment when we looked at it, it just wouldn't work. Like there was no way, good way to do secure authentication there, if I remember right. So when I've looked into it, it hasn't looked like something that we could, I could really play with, but I really, I'm excited about learning more about voice interfaces and seeing how we could get that more in our, or if it makes sense even in our environment. Yeah, I definitely think there's some interesting yeah. possibilities there. Yeah. The other thing that's, I think is interesting about voice interfaces is they're probably the closest that the average person comes to something that's a bit more analogous to a command line interface or yeah. an API interface. Yeah, it's interesting, but it doesn't... It, do, do you mean in terms of building your own little widgets? No, no. On, I, I mean, as far as interacting, like it started out that you would be at the terminal and you'd have to type in commands yeah. and get the computer to do things based upon what commands you'd entered it was like playing a choose your own adventure with your computer sometimes especially when you didn't know what you're doing and the voice 
assistants are like trying to provide a friendlier version of that i see in my opinion Uh and that's kind of where they are today but the idea would be in the future that like you don't have to know the right commands to say you just tell it whatever and it figures it out and it's it's getting closer and closer to that yeah yeah it's interesting i because i feel like it's they're all like the level of abstraction on the voice interfaces is so high there's no I, I maybe I don't play with the right ones, but it feels like you're interacting with a thing like a, a app. You can only interact with applications, right? I guess when you tell, like when you connect them to your to specific, you know, light bulbs or something like that, you're giving it more commandy type things. But it feels often like you're interacting with this level of abstraction, so that ah, might have its own interface. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It feels. <laughs> doesn't necessarily it doesn't feel commandy enough to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just yeah well more to come from hcl software voice interfaces (laughs) our future well i mean james didn't someone i I remember us maybe was with the research i was doing i i we wanted our morning like tell me what's up with big fix right like give me that and that that was that was the the goal and there, there were just some things in the way at the time. This was two years ago, I think, when we were we were looking at it. I don't know if anyone's looked at it since, but that was what I wanted. Yeah, I mean, I it, oh, that would out. be cool. Yeah, hey, you've got twenty five yeah. failed actions, you yeah, know, exactly. or you know, whatever, or you know, hey, hey, quote unquote, history yeah. deploy patch. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what yeah. one thing that would make it easier is having like a read only web UI operator and have it interact with that or. A read-only yeah. REST operator somehow, but you still have to expose your re- yeah. REST or web UI to the cloud, and that becomes a bit of a problem in terms of security. What I yeah. love about this idea, though, is I can see where big fix admins would take this. Once you get the first start in here, with all the home automation that's available now, I just imagine all the red lights and sirens that are going to come up <laughs> or in yeah. at home, right? Like it's just going to be awesome. And I can't wait to see that once we have, uh, once we have this, if we ever have this up and running. I like it. I know some people have done integrations with big fix with smart home stuff using proxy agents or other mechanisms. Um, we do have like a raspberry Pi agent now that you could try to interact with various um, Raspberry Pi based home automation hub stuff. Uh, So like those are possibilities. But one of the things I thought of um, for some of our like conferences or um, training things, someone came up with a big fix themed escape room. Kathy, who uh, is on our TA team. And it was amazing. It was really awesome. And one of my thoughts was, what if you had like a virtual big fix escape room where you could like remote desktop into a system and be able to control laptops and other devices that are in, that you can see on like a webcam. And like maybe one of the things you have to solve is to like wake one of the computers and then like change its lock screen so that it says like the next steps or gives you a clue of like what to do next and, and kind of do a, a virtual escape room with big fix. That sounds killer. So that's that's something that we've talked about numerous times. But yeah, the escape room was really fun. Would definitely recommend it. I like it. 
ideas for when we can actually meet in person someday (laughs) in some world, right? Yep. Well, that's what was my (laughs) part of my thought around the virtual one is to not have to meet in person. Yeah, that's true. Fun hackathon style project. Well, we've got uh, we've got big fix days coming up at the beginning of November, James. So uh, maybe Oof. you can put it together for a fun fun effort at that uh-huh. at that event. Yeah, with in all my cop- uh-huh. copious free time. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Aaron, hey, this was really um, I, I found it fascinating. I was, you know, as I'm new to big fix, as most people know. I mean, no, new to the company, not new to big fix yeah, itself. <laughs> Uh, but it's, it's always fascinating for me to see the, the trajectory of people's um, interest and, uh, you know, and how they ended up where they are. Um, it kind of mirrors some of my own, you know, liberal arts background. Somehow now I'm working at a computer company. So uh, I think that's really fascinating. Thanks really a lot yeah. for your time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed talking to you guys. Man. All right. Thank you very much. Cool. All right. Take it easy.